From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Libby Denkman. Welcome to Soundside. It's Thanksgiving week, and in the spirit of thankfulness, we're revisiting some of our favorite segments from the last year. And the hardworking producers who make Soundside, whom I am very thankful for, are making the picks. Today, I'm joined by Soundside producer Jason Burroughs, who's bringing us three very different segments. Hey, Jason. First of all, welcome to the show. Funny to say that. Thank you. And thank you so much for sharing. Of course. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going all the way back to the beginning of the year with this first one. What do you have for us? Dry January. I am a big fan of taking a little time off of drinking. I actually just finished Sober October last month. And with New Year's Eve not too far away, I figured it'd be a good time to look ahead to see how taking a month off of booze might be able to help people. Yeah, and resolution time is closing in. Folks are starting to think about that. And the holidays are a really booze-heavy time. So it's nice to have this conversation, I think, right now. So let's head back to January of 2023 when you were telling me exactly why you chose to participate in Dry January this year. So back before Christmas, my roommate started talking about Dry January. We had both been drinking a lot uh, across December. But really, like so many other folks in the country, are drinking really increased during the height of the pandemic. Yeah. And so when she mentioned that she was thinking about attempting to do Dry January, I was like, yes, let's do this. I'll be there for solidarity and support. And uh, so, yeah, we're doing it together. Nice. Team effort. So why would you decide to look into this for the show? You know, at first, I didn't think that anybody else would be participating in Dry January along with me, much less be interested in talking about it. And then I found out that two other members of the Soundside team are taking part, and that piqued my curiosity. So I ran a couple different polls. I did one on Twitter, I did one on Instagram, and one here on the KUOW Slack. And I found that there are quite a few people going booze-free. 26% of respondents on Twitter, 21% on Instagram, and 27 here at work. And that really, really surprised me. So... I decided to do some digging. I looked up Dry January to find out how long it has been a thing. And I found an article from the Seattle Times dated back to 2010 from Nicole Broder. And she mentions a friend of hers had been doing Dry January for six or seven years. And that was back in 2010. And in that article, she says that there was one Facebook group. It had 39 members. I looked now, there are over 80 groups. Each of them has anywhere from a dozen members to a couple thousand members, all with dry January support. So this is undoubtedly a thing, officially. Yes, yes. So I reached out to the University of Washington Center for the Study of Health and Risk Behaviors to ask them about what giving up alcohol for a month can do for you. I ended up talking to Dr. Catherine Wallachiewicz-Dienst. She's a clinical psychologist and second-year postdoctoral fellow there at the University of Washington, and she researches adult alcohol and cannabis use. I think that spending a month alcohol-free can really be a great way to pause and reevaluate the role that alcohol plays in your life and whether or not it might be helpful to make changes more long-term. So going alcohol-free for a month can save you money, you know, especially here in Seattle when cocktails are like $16 to $20. They can help you sleep better. They can help you have more energy. People reported noticing that their concentration improved. And so even in the short term, um, just going alcohol-free for a month can really have some profound benefits on your health and well-being. And these benefits are even noticed among people who don't meet the full 30 days, which is kind of interesting, although people who do complete the full 30 days notice more benefits. 
But even when you know something is good for you, it can be really hard to stick to it. I mean, I don't eat my vegetables every day or always get that 30 minutes of exercise I should. And there's a lot of societal pressure to drink. It's part of the rituals of life. Is that something you've had to confront, Jason? Personally, no. Most of the people I spend time with are either playing along with me with Dry January or understand that I'm doing it for me. However, this is something that I talked to Dr. Walakevich-Dienst about, and she says that there is a pretty big stigma about not drinking. I think especially in the United States, it's always a question of why. Um, You know, people are always very curious, you know, why you're choosing not to drink and ask a lot of questions, which is why I find programs like Dry January really wonderful because it gives people an option to try that out, potentially with less of the stigma that comes from choosing not to drink in general. So what can people do if they're having a hard time? It's 11 days into Dry January now. Here's what Dr. Walakevich-Tink said. Being really thoughtful going into Dry January can be really helpful and kind of identifying what your personal high-risk situations are. So for some people, that might be family dinner. (laughs) Or for other people, that might be going to a bar with friends, going to work happy hours. So like figuring out what are the situations that I might struggle to say no in and coming up with a plan. So that might be roping in a friend who is also doing dry January to go with you. That's, you know, maybe figuring out when you're going to leave. Additionally, practicing saying no, which I know sounds really silly. I did a lot of work in Louisiana with court-mandated individuals for substance use and alcohol problems. And one of the things that we would do is role-play saying no, which sounds really silly, but even just having it in the back of your head, like, no thanks, I'm not drinking. Um, And really trying not to leave it open to interpretation. Like, no thanks, I'm not drinking right now. Or no thanks, you know, I have a test tomorrow. Because that leaves it open for people to say, oh, come on, it's just one. Even no thanks, I'm doing dry January people can push back on. So finding a way to practice saying no can be really helpful. I asked if she had any thoughts for folks who are in the middle of their month away from alcohol and where to go from there. If you're in the middle of your dry January, you know, when you get towards the end, figuring out kind of different ways to celebrate, right? So a lot of people I think might think like, oh, great, like I'm going to celebrate completing this dry month, but really being thoughtful of thinking back through and reflecting, like, what did I notice in this month? that was helpful to me with not drinking and what things do I want to carry over next? I think using that moment to reflect can really help maximize some of the benefits of dry January. And for people who haven't started yet, even though dry months have catchy names now, like sober October and dry July and dry January, like really this can be any month of the year. And that even cutting back or reducing a little bit can have pretty profound impacts on your health. And I think not to get discouraged if they drank or had a slip up and to continue to try if it's something that's important to them. What about people who stay away from alcohol, not just in January, but all the time? Is it frustrating for them to have to hear all these folks going on about their dry January or making this like a social media trend? You know, for the most part, what I've discovered is that people who are in recovery or who have chosen not to drink at all are very supportive of folks taking a month off of drinking. Anecdotally, I know quite a few people who are sober and I ask them how they feel about people like me who are doing dry January. And the most common response I got is some version of, I hope it gives you a reason to evaluate your drinking as you move forward. Maybe you'll like it and maybe you'll continue to limit your drinking. And I had one person who said, 
if you are doing dry January and complaining about it, maybe you should really take a hard look at how much you drink because I've been sober for a long time and it's not that hard. Yeah. I can feel some eye rolls if one month away, you know, for sober folks who are like that all year round, hearing that they must, yeah, get a little bit bemused, maybe is the word. And that brings us to now. Jason Megatron Burroughs, you've started Dry January. How are you doing now that we're almost two weeks in? Pretty well. And I have found that while there are occasions where I really would like to go grab a drink, I still have plenty of options. For example, one of the spots near my apartment that I've been frequenting recently is Herb and Bitter, and they have a really wonderful cocktail menu and they make fantastic drinks. But what I noticed is that they have a dedicated section on the menu for non-alcoholic beverages. So I asked their bar manager, Mitchell Taylor, why it's important for them to have those on the menu. I think for a number of different reasons. The main one just being like inclusivity and everything. And also just to kind of help stretch us and our imaginations too, which is always a fun and challenging thing. But I think just giving people an option to be met wherever they want to be met. But also sobriety is definitely a growing thing, not even amongst patrons, but even amongst like bartenders and servers and everything too, you know, and as we get older, we just can't keep pounding alcohol as we did in our youth. So yeah, low ABV and no ABV options kind of idea is is definitely growing. Yeah, I've increasingly noticed pairing menus at restaurants when I do splurge on a night out. It's not just wine anymore, but some herbal and other non-alcoholic concoctions so sober folks can still enjoy that interplay between food and beverage minus the alcohol. But what about parties, Jason, or hangouts where everybody else, you know, has a beer in their hand? How do you avoid slipping back into old habits? One of the things that I've done in the past when I've taken time off drinking is having something in my hand while I'm out with my friends so I'm not the odd man out. Mm, yeah. And friends don't seem to feel obligated to offer you a drink if you have a cocktail glass in your hand. So I would always ask the bartender to make me like the designated driver special or something with Red Bull or something like that to, so that it looked like I had a cocktail, but I wasn't. And Mitchell over at Urban Bitter says that they're really trying to make their spiritless drinks as authentic looking as possible so you don't feel like you're missing out. You know, we, we put them in the same type of glassware. We give them the same intentionality with garnishing and, and balance and, and you know, using good ice and frozen glassware and everything else. So it, again, I mean, it set side by side with a normal alcoholic cocktail. You wouldn't know the difference visually. We try to make stuff that we would sit down and drink and enjoy ourselves. So nothing makes it on the menu that we wouldn't sit down and enjoy. Either mixed in with a round of other drinks or in place of alcoholic drinks. Yeah, and how is that landing? Are folks enjoying it? Yeah, Mitchell reports that ever since they launched their non-alcoholic menu last spring, they've been serving them every day. So while most of their business is still their pretty robust cocktail menu, they're adding more options to the non-alcoholic menu, and they're all pretty well-received. The newest drink they've added is called the Lightning Bug, and it's a play off of a cocktail called the Mezcal Mosquito. And rather than using Mezcal, they use Jalisco 55, which is a spiritless tequila alternative. And instead of Campari, they use Sand Bitter Soda. But otherwise, it looks and feels exactly like the original. And since we were finishing up and I was ready to grab a drink and some fried chicken, I asked Mitchell to make me one. So this is a drink that we're going to shake over ice, just because it has 
has citrus and it has some pretty viscous and bold ingredients in it. So we really want to agitate and aerate those and really force them together. And also add some energy into the drink itself. So we're going to start out with a shy one ounce of fresh lemon juice. Fresh citrus is always going to be one of the best things you can do for making good drinks. Then we're utilizing a sweetened ginger juice that we fresh juice straight from the ginger root itself and then mix it with a four to three ratio with just granulated sugar so it still maintains that really fun and spicy quality, really fresh. Next we're adding another shy one ounce of the Spiritless Jalisco 55, which again is their non-alcoholic tequila, quote unquote. We're going to hard shake that for about 10 to 12 seconds. And then just to make sure that that soda is nice and incorporated with the rest of the product that we're shaking, we want to pour that as we're straining the cocktail into our glass, just so it's all really well integrated and mixed together. It has a beautiful, deep, bold red color, nice froth from the fresh ginger. It's a really beautiful drink. And then we'll garnish it with a piece of candied ginger, just like that. Nice, refreshing lightning bug. Oh, that was awesome. How, how about you have that one? I will. Okay. Hmm, a tequila alternative, big if true. Does it taste like the real thing, Jason? What's the verdict on the drink? It's absolutely wonderful. It's sweet, but not overly so. The lemon and ginger both work really well with the sand bitter soda. And you don't get that weird fake flavor from the faux tequila that you find when you try the non-alcoholic alternatives by themselves. When they are by themselves, they're pretty gross. But when they're mixed, they're very good. And this was easily my favorite of what they have there. All right. So, Jason, are you planning to do Dry January again? I've been thinking about it, but I've been a spur of the moment guy for the past few years that I've done this. And uh, I'm guessing it will be based on how I feel after my New Year's celebration this year. All right. Keep us posted. And if you listeners, if anybody's thinking about participating in Dry January in 2024, we'd love to hear about it. You're listening to Soundside on KUOW. When we come back, we're headed out to meet some really wonderful horses in Redmond. We'll be right back after this quick break. Welcome back to Soundside. I'm Libby Dankman. And I'm producer Jason Burrows. During the Thanksgiving break here at Soundside, our producers are sharing some of their favorite episodes from the past year. And today is brought to us by none other than Jason Megatron Burrows. Okay, Jason, what do you have next for us? This is a segment that you and I worked on together, and I'm really proud of how it came together. Earlier this year, I saw a news report about a group of horses that were found living on a property out in Graham. They were neglected and in dire need of care. So a big group of them were taken in by a horse rescue out in Redmond, and you and I both went out there to talk to the director. Yeah, I remember that. It was a rainy February morning, and we got to meet Henry, who is a very special horse. Yeah, you arrived just a few minutes before I did and started recording as soon as you got there. And I'm walking into a large barn on a horse property off Avondale Road in Redmond. Past the stalls and gear hanging on walls is a large open area with two round pens for training. 
Last November, Pierce County Animal Control responded to a report of 27 neglected horses out on a property in Graham. The animals were in rough shape. Some had been left to fend for themselves out in a field with no shelter. Many of the horses ended up here, in this barn, at SAFE, short for Save a Forgotten Equine. The nonprofit's executive director, Bonnie Hammond, meets me by the gate to one of the pens. Hi. Hi. Are you Bonnie? Hi, Bonnie. My name's Libby. I'm with KUOW. Bonnie's holding on to the lead rope for a beautiful, slightly nervous Arabian horse. He's chestnut-colored with a white stripe on his face, kind of like a dab of paint rolled down his nose. Yeah, this is Henry. He was one of the horses that came from Graham. Uh, most of the horses that were part of this seizure are generally pretty gentle. And Henry's gentle, too, but he's got a lot of fear. He's, he's very reactive and very self-protective. So I work with him literally every day to help him understand that he can trust us and that he's not a bad horse and that he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. And I feel like he's <laughs> the earnest earnestness in his eyes. I really feel like he, he understands that, that we're here to help him and he really wants to make a connection. I was just going to say the expression in his eyes, they're so serious, they seem worried, they mm -hmm. seem concerned, and I, I didn't know if I was projecting or if you see that as well as somebody who works with horses every day. Definitely, definitely. You know, they say bravery isn't the absence of fear, it's overcoming fear, and um, Henry is so brave. Um, he tries so hard, and I, I'm, I'm really proud of the progress that he's, he's making. I think he really wants to make a connection, and... Uh, like I said, he is a smart, smart cookie, and he's doing really well. How do you first approach a horse that you don't know that has come to you from an animal control situation or a removal situation like the Graham 27? How do you get to know that horse and know their boundaries and understand their spots where they're particularly vulnerable or anxious? Well, um, it's a matter of just starting to handle them and seeing what they know and what they don't know. Basically, the reason why we put so much time into educating the horses that come here is because a horse that doesn't have basic manners is a dangerous animal. Okay, so we have Henry at Liberty, and I just want him to move around the round pen. Bonnie walks Henry into the training pen. One hand on the lead rope, she encourages him to walk, then trot and canter around the ring. Bonnie's patient and observant as she notes Henry's progress over a few weeks of training at SAFE. He's actually starting out really well. This is the more relaxed sort of trot that I'm, that I'm hoping to see out of him. I love Henry. I love him very much. But then when I say, oh, oh, oh good boy. <laughs> Good boy. I, I asked him to go down to the walk and he complied. After several laps, Henry takes a break and Bonnie and I sit nearby to talk about SAFE's mission and work. We are at the home of Save a Forgotten Equine Horse Rescue. We're in Redmond on the farm that we lease. It's 11 acres and it has 30 stalls and it's perfectly set up for the work that we do here. Um, we've got all the facilities that we need for training and education and we've got enough room for all the horses to go outside during the day we've got stalls to tuck them into at night and it's just it's a it's a very very nice 
workable location for what we're trying to do with these horses. And what's the mission of SAFE? Our mission is to rescue, rehabilitate, retrain, and rehome horses that face neglect or abuse. And what we're promising them is hopefully a permanent home and a lifetime of safety. So after we place a horse into a home, we, we continue to offer a safety net to, to those horses. And if anything ever happened to them in the future, if their adopters weren't able to keep them, we would take them back and, and start over again. But we put a lot of work into our adoption process. It's not something that happens quickly. It's a very deliberate and detailed process of finding the right person for the right horse and ensuring that, that each adopter has the capacity and the ability to care for a horse to our standards. And our standards basically are that they get plenty of good hay to eat, they've got shelter to get out of the weather, and uh, they've got room to run around and exercise and that they're treated well for the rest of their lives. Tell us how you first heard about the Graham 27. So we were contacted over the uh, Thanksgiving holiday by Brian Bowman, who is the animal control supervisor at Pierce County. And we've worked with Brian for probably 15 years. Um, And so he knows that when he's facing a situation having to do with horses, he can call us and we will do what we can to support him. We had not heard of this particular case, this particular situation, um, mostly because it's in Graham and Graham is so far away. Um, (laughs) I don't know if you've ever been there, but you drive forever and then you drive a little farther. But Brian and Pierce County Animal Control were extremely familiar with the case and they told us that this particular owner was somebody who they had been pursuing for 10 years. And the situation was a woman who owned 27 horses. She was uh, losing access to the property where she had them and she just did not have the capacity to care for them correctly. I think with animal control, it's, it's a matter of, you know, finally finding a prosecutor who's willing to go in and back up the case. And what they called on us for was to actually go to the property with them and help them herd, uh, round up the horses and uh, help them lo- load them into trailers so that they could be moved off the property. We were, we were somewhat optimistic because our understanding was that these horses had been part of a children's riding program. And so we thought, well, great, if they've got this, this training on board already, it should be pretty easy for us to find homes for them once we've gotten them back and, and rehabilitated them. And once they've been signed over, the ownership has been signed over to us. And we're finding out that um, it's really not that simple. I think the majority of these horses have they've had a rough time of it in terms of you know how they how they've been handled there we see a lot of anxiety we see a lot of almost robotic behavior where you 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 turn them loose and they just start chugging around the round pen at at top speed and every so often they'll hurl themselves to a stop turn around go the other direction they they act like horses that have been um, handled 
um, they've been handled strongly. After years of doing this, you've seen a lot of cases of neglect, of abuse, of horse properties that people maybe let get out of hand. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? <laughs> what usually leads to somebody letting a horse get to this state or, or what usually leads to situations of horse neglect and abuse? For the most part, it's when people get in over their heads. Horses are, I like to call them an attractive nuisance. I think, I think that's like how they refer to swimming pools. Um, or boats. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of people think like, oh, I've always loved horses. I would like a horse. And they don't realize how much work it is, how much money it costs, how much they poop, how much they eat, how you can never go on vacation. And so, so a lot of people get into horses with the best of intentions and then they get in over their heads. We do run into situations of animal hoarding, and those are people who are suffering from mental illness. Mm. What about the responsibility, too, of the people who are giving their horses away? Maybe Mm. they feel like they can't handle the animal anymore, but what kind of due diligence has to happen before you give your horse to a rescue or to, you know, another property. We recommend to people that they they never give their horses away. Do, if you're trying to find a, a, a home for your horse, don't advertise it as a free horse on Craigslist. Don't put up free ads. If you find the right person, you can opt to give your horse away for free. There's a lot of due diligence that we recommend, and that includes having extensive conversations about who the person is and what they are looking for. We recommend that you go see where the horse is going to be kept. We recommend, if you can, you know, check references, talk to their vet, talk to their farrier, talk to their trainer, and really make sure that it is, it is a, a, a legit home. We don't want to enable someone who should not have horses to keep horses, but People fall on hard times, you know, sometimes you, you, have a, you have a stumble and you just need a little bit of a, a leg up. So we have a community outreach program that will provide short-term assistance to horse owners who, who need help. And what does that look like? The big thing that we offer is no questions asked gelding service. If you have a stallion and you would like it not to be a stallion anymore, and we would like it not to be a stallion anymore, we will... We'll will pay for that process to be done by a veterinarian. We also have what we call our serenity fund, which is where we assist with uh, humane euthanization. We don't want a situation where a um, you know horse is, is made to suffer because their owner can't afford to give them that release and, and, and put them down. Mm-hmm. We provide hay for people who need that um, assistance on a short term. We provide veterinary care, we've done farrier care, we've helped people transport horses, just, you know, all, all sorts of things with the, with the goal of being that the horse will be able to remain in their home and not end up in the rescue pipeline. Henry? We're interrupted because Henry is making a bit of a fuss over in the round pen. If he was a human, I might call it a minor tantrum. A stocky chestnut female Clydesdale has just left the exercise area, and Henry is making sure everybody knows he is not cool with that. Mister, you don't think you can jump over that, do you? 
because I promise you, you can't. <laughs> he really, he really didn't like Kelly leaving. No, he did not. Aw, is she your special friend? I'm sorry, honey. <laughs> what has working with horses who have been through trauma, have been through mistreatment and neglect, taught you about pain and patience and how people and, uh, you know, all creatures can recover? Oh, I have so much respect and awe for these horses. One of the things that, that they've taught me is you'd think that a horse that's been mistreated, a horse that's been essentially failed by the person who was supposed to be taking care of it, you'd think that they would, they would kind of have a chip on their shoulder, that they would, they would carry a grudge against all people. But what I've seen over and over and over again is they come to us with an absolute blank slate and they look at us and they say, hi, you know, you've never hurt me before and I'm going to, so I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to, I'm going to try to trust you. And that is, I wish we could all kind of be like that where we didn't have preconceived notions and, and we weren't preparing ourselves to be hurt all the time. Instead, we were, we're op open to finding the good in people and they just definitely do that. And I think, I think it's so beautiful and amazing. And I, I, I wish I could be, be more like them in that regard. And just like Henry, I mean, he's been through a lot and he has fear, but he pushes through and he's really trying to learn and change and grow. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful to watch. It is. It is. You know, it's an honor to, to, to work with these guys and because it takes so little to make them, make them happy and make them comfortable and make them healthy. You know, it's just... They are not demanding, uh, you know, they have, they have basic things that they want and they want, they want food to come on a regular basis. They want to um, have friends around and they want to know what's expected of them. And that's kind of it. And it's just, it's so satisfying to take care of them because, um, you know, I really believe that they're empathic enough to know when you're trying to help them. I have gone out to pick up new horses, you know, countless times, probably 200 times. And I, I can think of like once or twice when the horse wouldn't get on the trailer. They know <laughs> that we're there to help them and they're ready to give us that chance. And um, it's inspiring. Back in the round pen with Bonnie, Henry is showing off what he's learned at SAFE. He's supposed to be listening to instructions and slowing down and stopping when Bonnie tells him to instead of nervously trotting round and round. When Henry first came here, all you would see would be him moving around this round pen as fast as he could go. No awareness of anything that I'm doing or saying and, and actually getting him to slow down and relax was was nearly impossible. After a few hiccups and false starts, he's right on target. I'm just trying to take the pressure off him, let him know that I'm not expecting him to move quickly anymore. And this is hard for him. Oh, Henry walk. Good boy, good boy. That is exactly what I wanted. What a good horse you are. 
Good boy, Henry. If you want to find out more about Save a Forgotten Equine, their website is safehorses.org. We'll have more info and pictures of Henry over at KUOW.org. Oh, Henry, we should check in on them and see how they're doing. That sounds like a fun follow-up for the new year. I am in. Okay, when we come back, we're diving into another one of your favorites, Jason, and that's our segment on the local independent wrestling scene. It's awesome. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on KUOW. Welcome back to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. We're off for Thanksgiving this week and looking at a few producers' picks as we prepare for future shows and make ahead all that mashed potatoes and stuffing that will get devoured tomorrow. I am joined by producer Jason Burroughs, and I'm very excited about your next selection, Jason. Me too. This was so much fun to work on. We're off to Washington Hall, home of local wrestling promoters Defy Northwest. It is another installment in the Jason and Libby Go Out and Grab Audio on Location segments, and I had way too much fun with this one. Yeah, it was great. I really enjoyed chatting with Nicole Matthews, one of the wrestlers, and Watching her transform from this mild-mannered Canadian that she is offstage to a super fierce competitor in the ring. All right, enough preamble. Let's just jump into it. Let's go. It's a Saturday afternoon, and the Central District's Washington Hall is about to get loud. The century-old building has held countless performers throughout Seattle's history. Jimi Hendrix once played here, and just a few feet away from that stage, a wrestling ring now dominates the center of the room. We're a couple hours out from an event put on by the independent wrestling promoter Defy. Tonight's show is called Violent Minds, and the athletes are still warming up. Men and women in workout gear are in the ring doing a kind of shadow boxing, moving in slow motion through flips, submission holds, and throws, almost like they're underwater. I, I always say that watching people plan professional wrestling might be the funniest looking thing in the world because they're doing like weird movements. You're like, what are, what are these people possibly doing? That's Nicole Matthews. She's a featured wrestler on the card for tonight's event. It's rare for the media to get a behind the scenes look at this planning process. It breaks a pro wrestling industry tradition known as kayfabe, the practice of staying in character and keeping the audience in suspense. Sure, this is scripted combat, but you don't want to spoil the fun of surprise. Nicole is open about the fact that she's a performer as well as an athlete. We have something called kayfabe, right? Where you pretend it's real to the fans or whatnot. But like, you can't really do that without insulting people's intelligence anymore, right? Tom Hanks doesn't pretend he's like Forrest Gump outside of- Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's kind of the same thing. Uh, but, you know, there's still a couple secrets you don't want to reveal, right? And there's, a, there's an art to putting together matches. It's that kind of transgressive attitude that gives local independent wrestling promotions a more grown-up feel than the national brands. They can experiment with convention more than industry giants. The founders of Defy Wrestling have likened their style of shows to alternative rock versus the pop rock of World Wrestling Entertainment, the WWE. Backstage, Nicole Matthews tells me about how she first got hooked on wrestling. Honestly, it's just the combination of the athletic nature of it and just the theatrics as well. Like, I'm quite a dramatic person, and I also have played sports my whole life, so it was just kind of the perfect blend of things. Uh, I, I always heard people refer to wrestling as musical theater for athletes, kind of. <laughs> 
And that's why wrestlers are all weird because we're all we're all theater kids basically who wear spandex. <laughs> that's so amazing. So I'm so curious about how do you develop a persona in the ring? Like you are one person in your day-to-day life and then the wrestling side of you is sort of this what is it the heightened version of who you really are or how do you develop that persona uh, I would say yeah that's kind of the almost a stereotypical answer people give right there's like themselves turned up to 11 uh, and uh, yeah that's true for sure um, I do try to keep a genuine personality in the ring that's not always a good genuine personality because uh, a lot of the time I'm the person you know I'm the heel I'm the person you're supposed to boo a lot of the time yeah so um, but I like to think about like what are the worst parts of my personality and enhance those and focus on those. Yeah. So the heel, like that is the person that, like you said, people are supposed to just hiss and boo and maybe even, you know, root against. Like, why do you like being the heel? It's amazing. It's just so, (laughs) nothing gives me more joy than an arena full of people booing me. It's just such a good feeling. <laughs> and I know that sounds so odd, but it's, uh, you know, it just means you're doing your job well, right? Because uh, the match is supposed to be about the, the baby face and the good guy and the good girl or whoever trying to win the match. And we want people to get behind them. So your job as the heel is to do that. And if they, you know, sometimes you have, you're wrestling great baby faces who just naturally get a great reaction. But sometimes if you're wrestling someone who's a little newer, maybe you have to help that along a bit. So just being a despicable human being usually does that. (laughs) I sense that there's a certain power in that, in being able to evoke an emotion in a crowd full of people. Yeah, I I like I like taking command of a room for sure. Uh, Yeah, it is a good feeling. And because in my regular day to day, I'm a pretty chill person and not someone who's like walking in a room being like, everyone pay attention to me. Like, I don't like to think I'm obnoxious in real life. So it's nice to be able to be obnoxious in the ring. You heard that right. Outside the ring, Nicole Matthews is a thoughtful and patient guide to the intricacies of her choreographed sport. Inside the ring, she's the heel, the rogue, the villain, and her signature finishing moves reflect that. One's called a roll the dice, which is I grab them from behind and plant them on their face. So yeah, yeah, whatever works, you know. And sometimes I uh, roll them up and put my feet on the rope because I don't mind cheating. you're a bad guy. Because I'm a bad guy, exactly. (laughs) Not long ago, Defy's version of professional wrestling would have been nearly impossible in Washington state. Fees and regulations governing theatrical wrestling events put independent wrestling, anything smaller than stadium or arena shows, in a full Nelson for much of the 1990s and 2000s. Jim Perry helped lobby for a law to change that. He left a job as a creative director at an advertising agency to co-found Defy in 2017. It was really interesting. The state of the pro wrestling for when Defy was on the scene was that if you were not the WWE, which of course we all know is a huge multi-billion dollar corporate entity, you could not really run a legal show in Washington state. The laws were set up with the Department of Licensing that if you didn't have a huge 20 by 20 foot ring and then you didn't have all this space between you and the fans and essentially the exact corporate footprint of one of those big events, get out of town, you can't run here. So me and my partners actually teamed together with the Department of Licensing and proposed new laws 
that would actually stimulate the cultural and economic uh, renaissance of independent wrestling in the state of Washington. So here are seven years later, we actually, with the state of Washington, developed a completely new license that's for theatrical wrestling schools and also made it way easier for independent wrestling to thrive in this community. And so it has. It, everyone was waiting for it. What do you think it says that there's a certain set, and I'm talking on an NPR station, so I think a lot of the set is within our audience. There's a certain set of folks who would dismiss pro wrestling and pro wrestling fans as being not sophisticated. What does that say about... What attitude does that project? What, what's really interesting about that is I think it's changing. And one of the reasons is more people like myself are getting involved in the wrestling. Um, there is a, a tremendous crossover between the folks that are now paying attention to wrestling once again, especially sort of maybe in their 30s or 40s, that turned off the TV after high school and are now re-engaging with the product in a very new way. And a lot of that is through independent wrestling like Defy, giving them something that is more adult-oriented that gives them more of like a nightlife atmosphere, that doesn't insult their intelligence, is not overtly rude to them as people, that respect them, and that where they can connect to the parts of it that they used to love as fans, without all the terrible stuff that we used to watch as fans, because a lot of it was really terrible if you watch it now. So now they can relate with it in a, a different way and build a new relationship with it. And it turns out it's a lot of people, like you and me, that like have a certain thing in our brain where we like to tell stories, we like to get into those stories. That's what the people find with this too. Because because of those layers and because of the nuanced storytelling that wrestling provides, there's like so many different things they can dig into. It's like, is that person really hurt tonight? Oh, I heard they actually wanted to do this. Oh, but what they're trying to do with this match is I think this. And oh, is he gonna get the title? There's so many layers of reality that they're going to need to work with at one time and also participating, because they get a vote in this, they boo someone, if they cheer someone, if they react or not, you're now a participant in this as well. So I think that's why it, that intrigues people like myself that are, that are more on the, you know, I am a subscriber of KUOW, you know what I mean? It's like I have the sticker and, and all that, so, and, and the book bag and everything else. But I'm not alone. Uh, a, lot of my, a lot of my friends and a lot of the people that, that work in wrestling right now, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, are, are very similar. Maybe that says more about the Pacific Northwest than wrestling in general, but yeah, we're just a little more nerdy here, I think. So Jim and his business partners are setting their sights on a rarely achieved audience, the Venn diagram of pro wrestling fans and KUOW sustaining members. In recent years, Defy has become a proving ground for top-tier wrestling talent. Some Defy athletes have signed with All Elite Wrestling, or AEW, which reaches a national television audience and competes for fans with the WWE. One of those success stories is local wrestling prodigy Nick Wayne. He was picked up by AEW last year and made his debut at an AEW event in July, two days after turning 18. Defy is a place that helped me grow so much as a professional wrestler and as a human. And I've spent so many years here just watching or wrestling here and done some amazing things in this building. And a lot of these people are my family, so I want to be here and still support them. As the action picks up in Washington Hall, Nicole Matthews, now clad in black boots and a glittering red and black unitard, saunters into the ring and sizes up her challenger, Masha Slamovich. From Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, she is Nicole!
For a while, it looks like Masha's fight. She executes a flying heel kick and throws Nicole to the mat. A row of fans have to clear their seats as the women bring the fight over the ropes into the audience. You get the feeling that the referee is just for show. But Nicole isn't phased. She grins and struts for the audience between moves. It's 15 minutes of over-the-top moves and mean mugging, and in the end... Nicole Matthews did exactly what she said she would do. She broke the rules, she put her feet on the ropes, and she rolled Masha Slamovich into a pin. You know, like a bad guy would. I am not a professional friend of these stupid fans. I'm a professional wrestler. And if you want to check out the action for yourself, Defy's next big event is Defy on Edge, December 30th at Washington Hall. You can find all the details at defywrestling.com. Jason, thanks for sharing your favorite shows with me today. We need to do another wrestling match one of these days soon. You're welcome. And yes, yes, we do. Thanks for listening to Soundside. And hey, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org.